This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, in the wake of the two mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, we examine the roles both white nationalism and unregulated guns played in these tragedies. We talk first with Heidi Byrick. She is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, an organization that tracks hate groups in America. She joins us to talk about the ways in which we may have moved into a new phase of hate, that of white nationalist domestic terrorism. She says that what Trump has legitimized and even encouraged is a part of America's heritage that we have been trying for decades to move past. Given that this country, basically for all of its existence until 1965, was racist by law, what Trump has done is he has just like thrown us back into something that we have been trying to get away from, right? He's really ripped open old wounds. And the work of pulling that back together, is it's not going to be easy. We're also joined by the CEO of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, Renee Hopkins, to talk about the fight for sensible gun laws in America and to highlight some of the legislation that got passed in Olympia in 2019. That's all ahead, so stay with us. The nation is reeling following a series of mass shootings, the first last week in Gilroy, California, which killed three people, including two children. And then over the weekend, shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio, took place within hours of each other. While the motive of the shooter in Dayton is unclear, the gunman in El Paso posted a manifesto online that showed his clear ties to white nationalism and talked about his intent to kill as many people as possible from Mexico and Central America, whom he called invaders. To help us contextualize the situation and to talk about what we can do, we are joined by Heidi Byrick. She is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Heidi, I know it's very busy where you are, so thank you for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So El Paso is not the first racially motivated mass killing that we've even seen this year. Uh, white nationalism, we know, was a motive in Poe, also in the Christchurch mosque killing. It's looking like it played a role in the Gilroy shooting as well. What can you tell us about the patterns that you're seeing here? Yeah, well, unfortunately, over the course of maybe the last decade, uh, certainly since Obama came into office, we have just seen an increasing number of domestic terrorist attacks or plots that are being perpetrated by white supremacists. Uh, That is to the point where in 2018, all of the domestic terrorist plots had a connection to uh, this kind of politics. In, in, In other words, there was no Islamic radicalism involved in any of these terrorist attacks. And at this point, um, the sad fact is that the number of people killed in domestic terrorist attacks by white supremacists is a little bit higher now than by Muslim extremists since in the period since 9-11. So the point here is these are more frequent. There are more of them. And this kind of terrorism, white supremacist-inspired terrorism, is the number one threat domestically, and a lot of people would argue internationally. Um, What happened in Christchurch was another white supremacist radicalized online with connection to hate groups, both in the United States and Europe. So this isn't something that's just contained within the borders of the United States. It's happening in other Western countries as well. Right. And in fact, you mentioned domestic terrorism, white nationalist domestic terrorism, and the shooting in El Paso is being called domestic terrorism by El Paso law enforcement and others. Is this the first time this language has been used to describe a mass shooting? And if so, what does that signal? 
I think this is the first time where there's been an absolute forthrightness about this looking like a domestic terrorist event, because in this case, what the feds are saying is that they're going to investigate El Paso under our domestic terrorism laws. I believe Attorney General Jeff Sessions, after the horrible Pittsburgh shooting last November at the Tree of Life Synagogue, also called that an act of domestic terrorism, but the investigation went down a hate crimes route instead of a terrorism route. So this signals to me, um, you know, they're kicking it up a, a notch at the Department of Justice uh, by labeling this domestic terrorism. And I should say, Gilroy, they have now opened a domestic terrorism um, investigation in that case as well. So looking at the white nationalist aspect of this, a recent piece in the New York Times says that perpetrators of attacks like the one in El Paso and then the one in Gilroy don't see these killings as an end in and of themselves, but rather as a call to arms for a race war. Can you talk about this? Absolutely. So that is that is a great way, a sad way to describe this. What these attackers are doing is they they believe that there is what they call a white genocide going on, that white people are being uh, displaced in their home countries by immigrant invaders. That's largely Latinos when you're talking about the United States, and in Europe it tends to be more people from the Middle East, and that there's sort of a replacement. That The attacker in, in New Zealand in Christchurch, his manifesto was called the Great Replacement. So like white people are being replaced. And, and so I, you know, these, I'm going to ask you about that because this is something that we have heard the white nationalist hate groups in Charlottesville chanting and elsewhere. What is meant by this idea of replacement? That's right. They In Charlottesville, the marchers, the Tiki Torch marchers talked about Jews will not replace us. Right. It's this idea that white people have a right to control Western countries, that they are the historic peoples of those places. So the U.S., Canada. Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And that what's happening is a coordinated, somehow mysterious attempt to displace them as majority populations or even as populations at all in those areas by bringing in brown people, black people, Muslims, whatever the case might be. And they believe it's an orchestrated effort. You know, in the El Paso Shooters Manifesto, he talks about Democrats bringing Latinos into the country so that they'll outvote white people, right? It's it's this idea that there won't be white people with any power left in their historic lands. And for some of these folks, what they call it is a literal genocide. They view this as white people being genocided. And what this rhetoric all does is it makes these people feel that the only way to save themselves is to commit acts of violence, and some of them hope to spark the race war that you mentioned earlier, that that's the only way to stop this trend, uh, just to start killing black people and brown people. And in fact, the, the way that a lot of these groups share this information, and in fact, where the El Paso shooter posted his manifesto was on a site, well, in his particular instance, it was 8chan, but there are other sites like 4chan, Gab, and this is a big question, but from a legal standpoint, briefly, where is the line on these sites between free speech and something actionable by law enforcement? Well, the fact of the matter is that these these websites can basically allow as much horrible speech or as little as they want. So the Silicon Valley companies have increasingly been trying to take hate speech down. I mean, it's an uneven process, but they're they're no longer arguing that this should be a libertarian free for all. The, because the government's not involved, a private company has a right to determine where that line is, just like a restaurateur doesn't have to let a Klansman in to have dinner and spout off all their hate ideas. 
But what has happened is that places like 8chan and 4chan and Gab have decided to, to be free-for-alls. And they don't really have lines, or if they do, those lines are uh, kind of hard for any of us to figure out where they are, given how much violent speech and hateful rhetoric are on those sites. So they're, they're virtually unmoderated. Law enforcement, if there are direct threats posted in those areas, can act on them. But the laws in the United States make it a little unclear because there have been different rulings about if it's even possible to make a direct threat on someone on the internet because there's not proximity. So it's a really muddy space for law enforcement to, to handle, uh, and it's kind of unclear what the rules should or should not be. So, so the upshot of all this is we've got the most vile, racist, hate, anti-Semitic propaganda thriving on Gab and the HN and 4chan. Well, so then I want to shift over and talk about the work that the Southern Poverty Law Center does, specifically in how you track these groups. So tell us a little bit about how your organization tracks and monitors these hate groups. Well, nowadays, we spend a lot of time on our computers tracking hate groups because as propaganda outfits, they want the world to know where they are and what they're up to. So, you know, we're looking at their websites. We're looking at their forums. We're looking at places like 8chan and 4chan and Gab to find hate activity. We do are you a, we personally spend spending time on those sites? Yeah. Oh, God, that's got to be so difficult. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there's an aspect to it that's very horrific. On the other hand, the only way that you can do something about it is to understand where these people live and congregate, right? Yeah. So you you've got you got to spend the time there. So most of the tracking's online. We used to actually get a lot of um, hardcover pub, pub, publications from these groups, but those days are gone, right? It's, everything's moved to the web. So that that's the main source of our information about what the groups are up to and what they think. We also look at if they exist, their Facebook pages their uh, Twitter accounts, you know, whatever exists for us to track um, these groups and, of course, their own hate sites and forums. And I know that you have a hate map on your website. What is the number of hate groups that you're currently tracking nationwide? So the number of hate groups is up 30 percent in the last four years. We're up to 1,020. That is the highest number that the Southern Poverty Law Center has ever counted in the last basically 30 years. It's a uh, it's a little frightening, actually. Yeah. Uh, and all of, you know, every group that's on this list, on our map, th they only make it on the map if they've done some kind of real-world activity in the past year, held a rally, did a flyering, something along those lines. So it's an indication of greater activism by white supremacists as they make up the bulk of the list in American society. And it's very, very unfortunate. You mentioned that the increase you've seen over the last four years. I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us what the increase is specifically since Trump took office. It's They're up 30 percent. So I think we had 784 hate groups the year that he announced in 2015. And for 2018, we're up to um, 1,020. So there, there's no question that the rise of Donald Trump is correlated to um, enlivening this movement because he really spoke to them from the first day that he went down that escalator at Trump Tower and talked about Mexicans as rapists. Yeah. Uh, this has been something that has you know been near and dear to their hearts. And I might add the FBI's hate crime statistics um, for approximately that time period also show about a 30 percent rise. So hate groups are up. Hate crimes are up. You know, it's like the more domestic terrorism from white supremacists, all the, the most horrible trends um, related to racism and organized white supremacy in this country are on the up. 
Yeah. And in fact, a recent Washington Post report showed that counties that held a Trump rally in 2016 saw a 226 percent increase in hate crimes. So, you know, you touched on this already, um, but and you alluded to this in a statement that you released. But talk about some of the ways in which you see Trump as culpable in the El Paso shooting. You know, Trump's language, what what he has said, what he has tweeted out has in many ways is exactly the same as white supremacists. If you're going to call Mexicans or immigrants invaders, that is directly out of the David Duke playbook. If you're going to call, you know, them infestations, vermin, you're going to refer to black um, majority countries as, you know, in a a derogatory term, blank holes. If you're going to do all of this, What you are doing is you are speaking directly to people who might have bigotry and racism in their heart, but don't say it out loud, don't act on it, and giving them sanction. Uh, Trump has also posted anti-Muslim videos, tweeted out fake black um, crime statistics that supposedly show black people are killing white people at horrible rates. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. He has been a huge megaphone for hate speech in a way that I don't think anybody ever anticipated, at least in this era, seeing out of the White House. And so he's energized all these people and he said to them, it's okay to be, you know, to think these things and to believe these things. And so that helps hate groups and hate forums to thrive. I absolutely blame him. And and you look at the El Paso Shooters Manifesto, that rhetoric is something you can find in a Trump Facebook ad right now. And in, in fact, an article in The New York Times by uh, Peter Baker and Michael Shearer shows direct attribution from Trump's tweets and language in the El Paso Manifesto. Exactly. And And the other thing about this is there is now ample amount of research that shows that when public figures engage in hate speech, there's a real world increase in hate crime. There was a big study down out of um, the UK at the University of Warwick that tried to tie directly Trump's anti-Muslim tweets with real world hate crimes against the Muslim community. And there's more research than that. So, you know, you start engaging in this kind of speech. You are making people specifically vulnerable to violence. So Trump gave a speech on Tuesday saying in part that our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. Uh, it, it is notable to me anyway that he didn't use a first person there and say, I condemn these things. But do you think that his speech had any impact at all on his white nationalist followers? I don't think so. I mean, look, what he said was the right thing to say, but it's completely hollow. You know, Trump has said before that he was going to rein certain things in, he was going to act better, whatever. He never does it. And I don't think anybody in the white supremacist movement thought of that as anything other than, oh, you know, our great leader has come under some pressure, so he's got to placate, you know, whatever, right? He's got to play some political games. And, you know, it's just so hollow because you can't go around spouting hate speech day after day after day and then stand up there and make a statement like that. It's just so hypocritical. So white nationalism did not begin with Trump. Uh, I think we can fairly say that he is something of a culmination. But how do you see the work that we will have to do to delegitimize these white nationalist hate groups after Trump is gone? Oh, Lord, it's going to be a big task. Um, You know, but there are some positive things happening already. You know, until the Charlottesville rallies in 2017, when you talk to the tech companies about hate speech, they have this pure libertarian position 
that good speech will crowd out bad speech and there's nothing wrong with hate speech on our platforms. That's no longer the dialogue, right? Silicon Valley in general is trying to get that stuff off mainstream platforms. That over time will mean fewer people radicalized into the hate movement. So that's a positive thing. If we have leaders who denounce hatred and, and stand by that, right? If that's possible. And, you know, I'm talking about, it's more than elected officials. It's also just public officials, people speaking out that will help turn the tide here. If we get law enforcement to focus on the issue of domestic terrorism related to white supremacy, that could also have a suppressive effect on, on these ideas proliferating. But even so, this is going to be a hard slog, you know, Given that this country, basically for all of its existence until 1965, was racist by law, and some of the views that we're hearing were part of the mainstream and normal, right, by white people, but you know, rank racism, what Trump has done is he has just like thrown us back into something that we have been trying, you know, not totally successfully by any means, but trying to get away from, right? He's really ripped open old wounds. And the work of pulling that back together, is it's not going to be easy. Well, because this show is uh, listened to by progressive activists and because I, I like to try to close on a positive note uh, whenever possible, uh, what, in your opinion, are some proactive things that we can do right now to be pushing back against the rise of white nationalism uh, in the United States? Well, I think the simplest thing is actually just to speak out about it. I think sometimes people don't understand that how powerful that kind of a collective voice to any person can be about this. There are also legislative proposals that that are being pushed in Congress, the No Hate Act, which is to strengthen hate crimes reporting, for example, an anti-lynching bill that has been uh, put forward in both the Senate and the House is like stalled. Lord only knows why, but that's something else that you could argue for. Chairman Benny Thompson out of Mississippi on the Homeland um, Security Committee is putting forward um, a bill to get better data on white supremacist terrorism. Those are all things that you could back and would help us confront um, this problem. And, you know, coming out like there were rallies over this past week in, you know, against hate, and against gun violence, all that kind of protest matters. And then, of course, there's the ballot box, right, which is which is of critical importance. Absolutely. 2020 is very much on the horizon. Well, thank you for helping to contextualize things and for uh, ultimately leaving us in a positive place. Heidi Byrick is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Heidi, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. And we are joined next by our friend Renee Hopkins. She is the CEO of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility here in Washington. And we are so glad that she could join us again, although uh, we certainly wish that it could be under better circumstances. Hi, Renee. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, something like this is always hard to process, but it's especially hard to process that it keeps happening. What has been your reaction to these most recent shootings? I think um, along with most of the country um, individually and as an organization, I think there's a, a sort of joint reaction of just, you know, continued grief and despair for what we're seeing happen around our country every single day. 
um, along with just absolute anger that more is not being done. Um, Listen, we've we've made a lot of great progress in Washington state. We will continue to make great progress in Washington state. But this is a national public health epidemic, and it needs to be treated with the gravity that other national public health epidemics are. And it simply has not been. Yeah. You know, this is it's just such a depressingly familiar cycle after every mass shooting, which is, you know, people, as you say, uh, feel grief, despair. They feel anger. They demand change from their lawmakers and it never happens. And then ultimately people can start to feel numb. How do we keep from becoming numb to these tragedies, do you feel? Well, I mean, I think that that's a challenge, and it's a challenge that our base of advocates continues to take on and overcome. Um, we simply cannot allow ourselves to become numb to to this epidemic. You know, there is hope. Like, we know that gun violence is preventable. We know that by investing in a combination of stronger gun laws, community-based programming to prevent and interrupt violence, um, implementation to make sure that the laws we pass are actually working for their intent, and public education to make sure that people throughout our state and throughout our country are aware of what gun laws are on the books, aware of the tools that they can use to keep their families safer. And we know we know this recipe. We've applied the same recipe to other public health crises in the past, including motor vehicle death and injury. And with, with that combination, with a public health approach, we know that we can reduce gun violence and, and the epidemic that is gun violence in America today. And clearly this is what people want. I mean, the vast majority of Americans, when polled, including the vast majority of gun owners, want common sense gun reform at the federal level. I know Governor Inslee, who of course is running for president, has just released a 10-point plan to address these shootings. You've worked with the governor since the beginning of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. What can you tell us about his 10-point plan? Yeah, absolutely. We have been so fortunate in Washington state to have both a governor and an attorney general that are just absolutely dedicated to doing what needs to happen to reduce gun violence in our communities. Washington state is a leader on gun violence prevention and the kind of leadership that Governor Inslee continues to demonstrate with this new 10 point strategy, um, much of which is really looking at that intersection of white nationalism and gun violence. We know throughout our country and Washington state is no exception um, that since the 2016 election, there has been a steep, steep increase in hate crimes and that those hate crimes are driven by racial, religious, or anti-LGBTQ bias. So really looking at this intersection and prioritizing you know, after 9-11 at the federal level, there was a prioritization on reducing terrorism and preventing terrorism. But even our the FBI within our country has identified that the greatest risk within terrorism is white nationalism and, and homegrown terrorism. Um, it's not from external forces. And so Governor Inslee rightly lays out a plan that would prioritize for law enforcement the prevention of domestic terrorism, as well as a number of provisions around um, specific gun laws, including expansion of extremist protection orders. Uh, In Washington state this last year, 
we um, expanded extreme risk protection orders to be applied both to youth who are demonstrating potential of harming self or others, and also added in a provision um, for judges to, during the sort of due process that plays out, to really take a look at past um, hate crime and, and hate behavior yeah. as something that that should be considered when um, when looking at whether an ERPO would make sense in a certain situation. His plan also calls for a national targeting of people who lie and try to buy guns. In 2017, we passed a lie and try bill in, in Washington state. Um, so, you know, I, I really encourage people to take a look at his website yep. and, and learn more about what he's calling for. I will make sure that there is a link to that for people to check out at indivisiblepodcast.org. And like you say, Washington state has really been a leader on gun safety. And, and in fact, states are where the majority of progress has been made on the gun safety front. So, you know, I'd like to just briefly touch on what has been accomplished here in the state over the last year, because it's pretty impressive. So first, as we know, 1639 passed and by a 60 percent majority, which was very encouraging. Can you just briefly remind us of the measures that it put in place? Absolutely. 1639 um, was the most comprehensive ballot initiative um, in Washington state's history and arguably in the country's history in terms of a ballot initiative. Um, And it really, it did a number of things. Um, First and foremost, uh, it applied a a lot of regulation to the purchase and possession of semi-automatic assault rifles. So raising the age of um, purchase and possession eligibility to 21, uh, requiring uh, training to own and or possess a semi-automatic assault rifle. It requires a 10-day waiting period to purchase a semi-automatic assault rifle. Um, In addition to that, we also um, included measures to really encourage safe storage and provide the public with um, education about the harms that owning a firearm uh, increase the risk of. So now at the point of purchase of buying uh, a firearm, any kind of firearm, uh, individuals are notified that there's an increased risk of suicide, domestic violence, homicide, and unintentional firearm, either injury or death. Um, by simply owning a gun. The idea that owning a gun makes you safer is simply not something that is upheld by data and research. Um, We also included a provision that would apply criminal liability if someone owns a firearm, does not store it safely, and the gun falls into uh, the wrong hands, whether that be a child or someone who is prohibited from possessing or purchasing firearms, and something happens, whether it be unintentionally or intentionally, that the gun owner is actually held criminally liable. So these are really great measures and all very common sense. And I should mention that the NRA has filed suit against 1639. But just so people are clear, the law still remains in effect during that suit, correct? 
the law is in effect during that suit. And, uh, you know, we know that the NRA and the Second Amendment Foundation, the gun lobby in general, um, their only chance to defeat um, common sense gun laws in Washington state is through litigation. Um, so we were anticipating this. Um, it was not a shock to us. And definitely in developing the law, put every safeguard we could to make sure that it would be upheld during a court challenge. I also want to talk about the 2019 legislative session in Olympia because a lot got done there, too, uh, due to voters electing what you call the, quote, gun violence prevention majority. What were some of the noteworthy things that got passed this year in Olympia around gun safety? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we like to sort of joke in the office that we 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 flipped Olympia orange <laughs> rather than blue or red. <laughs> and, and orange, I should point out, is the color of gun safety advocates. Yeah. Yes, that's true across the country. Um, so this was our most on the heels of passing um, Initiative 1639 and electing a gun violence prevention majority. Uh, we were able to accomplish more in Olympia in one session than we had prior um, years cumulatively. And what that really means is that we passed um, 10 new laws, the majority of which now are all effective. And the sort of suite of laws that we passed really look to address the sort of diversity that we know exists in the types of gun violence in Washington state. So some really important suicide prevention laws, uh, some really important domestic violence laws that make Washington state arguably the state that has the strongest domestic violence laws when you're looking at the intersection of domestic violence um, and gun violence, which there's a huge increased risk for women in particular um, in domestic violence uh, relationships where a gun is involved. And we're starting to definitely notice that there's also an intersection between domestic violence and mass shootings. So all of these things are, are really interrelated and being able to pass, again, a suite of policies, 10 different laws now into effect. Um, so feel really, really excited about what we were able to do, um, but also really know that we have a lot more to do. Yeah. And uh, I want to ask about 2020 in just a moment. I will just note that uh, some of what got accomplished in 2019, as you mentioned already, uh, Governor Inslee has drawn on for his 10-point plan. So, uh, yeah. So let's talk about the 2020 session. So the Democrats are going to have the same majorities in both chambers going into 2020. What sorts of legislation will you be pushing for in next year's session? Yeah, well, we'll definitely be supporting um, as something that was passed this last year was a feasibility study around centralizing background checks. And this is a place where people from across the aisle um, was unanimously passed out of the House and the Senate um, really see the benefit for the community, for law enforcement, uh, for gun owners and having a centralized background check um, system. So The feasibility study for that will be done in December, and we anticipate um, a proposal to actually implement what they have found from that feasibility study as part of the 2020 um, legislative session. In addition, very pertinent to what's happening at the national level right now, 
with these continued back-to-back-to-back mass shootings, uh, we're going to be pushing really, really hard for high-capacity magazine restrictions. We know that high-capacity magazines are really what make the difference in, um, in increasing the sort of level of carnage um, in mass shootings. Yeah, we saw that in Vegas, and we certainly saw that in the the Dayton shooting as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So that is something that our legislators, um, we have a really strong policy um, in front of them. It was, it was, has been there for the last couple of years. The attorney general um, has requested this legislation, and it's something that uh, we'll be pushing really hard for next year. And the third thing that I'll note, um, or actually two more things that I'll note for um, next year is really having a a discussion and continuing to have a discussion around the right of local authorities and local municipalities and counties to be passing local legislation um, to protect their communities. Right now in Washington state, we have a very strong preemption law that prohibits a lot of local action around gun violence prevention. And we just believe very, very strongly that, you know, city leaderships and county leadership, they know what is most needed in their jurisdictions. So they should definitely be allowed to act in a way that keeps their communities as safe as possible. I mean, it's a paramount duty of local governments to keep their communities safe. And then the final thing that I will note, and and this is part of a discussion in Olympia, but also part of a discussion in cities and counties around the state, is investing in community-based programming to make sure that uh, we have people, again, who know their communities, who can act in a way to prevent and interrupt violence. And this is especially violence that impacts um, our communities of color disproportionately. Um, and, and that violence is something that we don't hear about in the news every day, um, but it is happening every day. And so we really have to be supportive of centering the conversation around gun violence that impacts black and brown communities. I know that there are a number of people within the listenership of this program who are very involved with lobbying in Olympia, and so I think they're taking very careful notes with what you're saying in regards to gun safety measures for 2020. And speaking of that, you know, people after these mass shootings, people really do feel the urge to take action. What do you feel that we can be doing as activists and as citizens? Absolutely, Stefan. Um, The number one thing that I would say we should be doing is voting. And I would encourage people to think about voting not just at the presidential level, not just at the state legislative level, but also at the local level. Um, So this, you know, 2019 in Washington state, we have um, local races happening across the state. And these positions are absolutely critical to making sure that laws are passed at the state or federal level that they're actually implemented per their intent. So please make sure that um, as an activist that you're voting up and down um, the ballot. And I will ask you about that. Uh, You put out an endorsement guide for the primaries. Will you be putting out another endorsement guide for the general? We absolutely will. And and as people will see, you can you can look at that on our website um, to see the candidates that we've endorsed and we've endorsed um, candidates across the state. So really encourage the listenership to take a look at um, at who we've endorsed. We only endorse uh, we only endorse one candidate in each race. 
Um, and the thing that we ask of our endorsed candidates is, is not just that they're sort of quote unquote good on the issue, but that they are willing to champion the issue. So please encourage everyone to, to uh, take a look at that. And if you have questions to reach out to us. Um, the other thing that I would really encourage people to be doing is put as much pressure as possible on our Washington state delegation at the federal level. Uh, there is absolutely no reason that we should not be calling for uh, Mitch McConnell uh, to be convening the Senate to be taking action on what we know are some bipartisan bills that are that are sitting there that have passed out of the House. Um, and then the third thing that I would really encourage people um, to do is to be very active at the federal level right now and at the local legislative levels. Reach out and talk to your elected officials. Go to town halls. Make sure that gun violence prevention is being elevated during every single conversation. Um, and set up meetings with your elected leaders during this federal recess and during the state level interim period. Make sure that they're hearing from you year-round that this is an issue for you and it's an issue that you will vote on. Absolutely. All great suggestions. And I will just add to what you said about the Senate. Uh, I think we know the reason why common sense legislation can't get passed is because of Mitch McConnell and the GOP-controlled Senate. And so uh, pick a candidate who's running against a vulnerable senator in 2020 and donate money, volunteer, all that good stuff. So, uh, Renee, before I let you go, you've been doing this work for a very long time. And as I said, this is just a sadly familiar scene. I'll just ask you, what keeps you going? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think a couple of things keep me going. Um, as we've talked about on this um, show before, you know, I lost a, a teenage brother more than 20 years ago um, to gun violence and school shooting um, in Washington state. Um, I now have a daughter that's near the age that he was when he was killed. Um, and I have a community, um, both in the, the city in which I live and the, the state in general, um, that I just feel so passionately about. And I think what keeps me going, um, is, is my absolute belief, um, that this is preventable. We do not have to live like this. And, you know, it, it, it might be easy to <laughs> feel hopeless and helpless at certain moments, but um, Reverend McBride, who's an, a lovely human being um, that works on gun violence prevention in the Oakland area, said recently at a, um, at a talk that I was at that he gave that, you know, the, the architects and builders of the amazing cathedrals that we see all over Europe and um, even some in, in the U.S., that they knew when they started building those that they would not see their completion. They knew that it would take, you know, hundreds of years at some, in some cases mm. um, to actually see what, um, what their labor of labor of love um, resulted in. And now I don't believe this is going to take us hundreds of years, <laughs> <laughs> but I do believe keeping that in mind that, um, you know, what what I might see in the next 10 years might not be the progress that I would would hope, but everything we do today is saving lives in the future, and we just have to keep that in mind. Perfect words to end on. Renee Hopkins is the CEO of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. As always, Renee, thank you for joining us, and thanks for all the work you do. Thank you, Stefan.
And that's going to do it for this week's show. I will just say before we go that uh, this week has just been enormously difficult in that I do hope you're taking care of yourself and taking whatever time you need. As I like to say, we are all part of a big chorus. So if you need to stop, take a breath, take it, and, you know, we'll keep singing. And then down the line, someone will call on you to keep singing while they take a breath. Look, if I don't say it, I am so grateful to all of you for listening and for being a part of this community. We are absolutely in this together. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there too. If you would like to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Heidi Byrick and Renee Hopkins. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell and Chris. Ellingbo, and as always, sincerely, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.